Hello, and welcome back to The Dictator's Podcast. I left off last week with the coup of 1973. The democratic government of Chile had been ended. The military was in control. Today, I'm going to cover the aftermath of that coup, and how Pinochet went from being the last to sign on the dotted line to the permanent dictator of Chile, and how he reasserted control over a military and a nation that didn't know or trust him. I'll also cover one of the most notorious acts of violence and brutality in the post-coup period, the so-called Caravan of Death. So, last week, Pinochet agreed to the coup to end the Allende regime. He was one of the last important military heads to do so, and was not involved in the planning before the coup was set to begin. In the days following the coup, the military dissolved Congress, blocked the Constitution, imposed a curfew and harsh censorship policies, and appointed Pinochet as the head of the junta. Now, this appointment was meant to be a matter of protocol. The junta was composed of the heads of the four branches of the Chilean armed forces, army, navy, air force, and carabineros, or military police. Now, the army was the largest and oldest branch, so Pinochet was meant to be the first head of the junta, but the position was supposed to rotate between the four of them annually. Pinochet said about this, I don't want to seem to be an irreplaceable person. Today it is me, tomorrow Admiral Marino, then General Ley, and so on. He also added, As soon as the country recuperates, the junta will turn over the government to whoever the people desire. Now, both of these statements were spectacular lies. There's little reason to believe that Pinochet ever seriously intended to share power with the rest of the junta, and there's even less reason to believe that he ever intended to willingly resign in favor of the democratic will that he so detested. This is a point that can be disputed, but given Pinochet's actions, I am personally convinced that from the beginning, Pinochet intended to rule. As an aspiring autocrat, Pinochet had some assets. He was the head of the army, and he had just been appointed the head of the government, and that's a pretty good place to start from. He also had some obstacles. It's worth remembering that the coup wasn't just a violation of civilian law and constitutional principles. It was also an absolute breach of the Chilean military chain of command. When Pinochet took power as the head of the army, that chain of command had just been seriously broken. Soldiers in all branches had just refused to take orders in one of the most extravagant ways possible. And the coup of 1973 could just as easily serve as a precedent for some coup further down the line that would replace Pinochet himself. So the first order of business was to restore control, both over the Chilean nation and over the army. And in this, Pinochet had a bit of a quandary on his hands, ironically, because the coup was quite popular. Chilean society had all of the ingredients of a protracted civil war, two sides with completely irreconcilable worldviews, each convinced the other had just betrayed the very foundations of the nation. Each side had violent terrorist cells that could form the core of a paramilitary structure, with Patria y Libertad on the conservative side and Mir on the socialist side. There were speeches leading up to the coup about stockpiling guns and training peasants to fight. There was a very high-profile martyr on the left in the figure of Allende, The nation was a powder keg of animosity and recrimination that could, at any moment, detonate into widespread chaos and violence, and it was to the consternation of Pinochet that it just... didn't. 
This is not to say that there wasn't any insurgent activity. There was, but especially given all of the rhetoric before the coup, seemingly everyone in Chile was surprised at how little there was. In the months after the coup, there was sporadic violence, with mere operatives attacking installations of junta power, but throughout, there were only around 50 military deaths attributable to leftist violence. Part of this was because the Allende government had lost the widespread support of the lower and working classes that it had in 1971. Scarcity, breadlines, and graft within the Unidad Popular had convinced most Chileans that the Chilean way to socialism couldn't work. Supporters of the UP described being astonished that after Allende's death, there was no compassion, that the nation seemed to be saying, good riddance. And this good riddance attitude was buoyed by the fact that most of Chile had no conception of what military rule would be like. Most Chileans, including many supporters of Allende, expected that the new military government would stay in power for only a few months until things were stable, and then they would call for new democratic elections before returning to the barracks. This perception marginalized the Mir and supporters of socialist revolution all over Chile. So, in the days after the coup, faced with a surprisingly calm nation that just didn't justify the martial law Pinochet wanted to impose upon civilian society and the purging and iron hand he wanted to take to the military, Pinochet and the junta government contrived to fabricate one. And this is really the context within which most of the extreme brutality and violence has to be understood. Pinochet and the junta needed to convince the country and the army that they were at war against a pervasive and insidious foe. And while there was enormous violence throughout the country during the coup, especially in rural areas directed against labor organizers and members of the UP and smaller communities, there was also a surprising amount of order. Commanders of some regions were able to impose military control with very little actual violence. Most of the first group of leftists brought in for interrogation actually came in voluntarily. The radio began broadcasting lists of names of leftists, progressives, labor organizers, and academics who were supposed to report for questioning. Most of them still had a great deal of faith in the institutions of Chile, and most of them were innocent of any charge of actually supporting violence. When they were asked to report for questioning, most complied. In fact, in a dark irony, the police were not prepared to handle the great numbers of suspects voluntarily turning themselves in and the process was long and disorganized. Many people reported having been irritated by the long lines and being told that they had reported to the wrong place and given new, sometimes conflicting instructions. A professor of international studies, Carlos Naudon, actually used his connections at the Ministry of Defense to ensure that he was collected for questioning, talking his way inside after being told to go elsewhere. In Santiago, over 7,000 people were eventually rounded up and brought to the Estadio Chile, the national stadium. And it was there that these suspects finally learned the true nature of the questioning and of the new government. Inside of the stadium, the order of the day was violence and terror. Several people were simply shot without trial or even an explanation. One of these was the poet, activist, and musician Victor Jara. Jara had been a progressive activist in Chile and had antagonized the Chilean conservatives on more than one occasion. He became a communist and was a vocal and high-profile supporter of Allende. He composed the song Venceremos, which became Allende's campaign song, and he became a prominent leader in leftist folk music both in Chile and around the world. In the national stadium, 
Hara was tortured by several soldiers, including the sadistic Colonel Mario Bravo, who was in charge of security at the stadium. The torturers burned him with cigarettes, and then crushed both of his hands before ordering him to play the guitar for them. They forced him to play Russian roulette until he was shot in the head, and then they shot his body more than 30 times. They hung his body at the entrance of the stadium as a warning to the rest of the detainees, and would eventually dump his body unceremoniously into the street. Hara was a good man who wrote songs of hope and love and inspired a generation of musicians in Chile and around the world. It goes without saying that he didn't deserve what happened to him. He wrote a song while he was detained in the stadium, and though the tune isn't known, the text of the song was copied down and smuggled out in a friend's shoe. The lyrics of that song are now generally considered a poem that's often referred to as Estadio Chile, and it was published by Hara's wife Joan while in exile. I'll link to the text of it in the show notes. While the greatest number were held in Estadio Chile, there were similar makeshift camps throughout the country, filled with people who were mostly innocent of anything that could even charitably be considered a crime, and who had turned themselves in for questioning voluntarily. And throughout the country, these people would be subject to truly inhuman treatment. There was an enormous amount of torture. There were psychological torments that were as inventive as they were sadistic. There were mock executions. Prisoners were starved to death or forced to eat feces. There was also an incredible amount of truly horrific sexual violence perpetrated upon the prisoners. While this was going on, Pinochet was focused on creating the atmosphere of a war and punishing anyone within the military whose behavior was anything less than fully warlike. One of those was General Cantuarias, whose base in the Andes was near the border. Before the coup, when things were still uncertain, Pinochet had sent his family to that base, knowing that Cantuarias was an Allende sympathizer, in the hope that they would be kept safe there if the coup failed and the constitutionalist faction within the army began a counter-revolution. Some scholars have argued that this was also an attempt by Pinochet to position himself to lead such a counter-revolution if it happened. Um, and this is a case that I find plausible, since Pinochet seems always to have aligned himself with whatever group seemed the most likely to win. During the coup, Cantuarias refused to bomb a mine, and shortly thereafter he was taken prisoner. It isn't entirely clear what happened to him, but he was killed, either by pro-coup forces or he was forced to commit suicide. Another way they took to creating this warlike atmosphere was through what is now known as the Caravan of Death. Beginning on September 30th, a squad of mostly army personnel, led by General Ariano, flew from camp to camp in an infamous Pumac helicopter. This squad went from south to north in the nation of Chile, and at each stop selected a number of prisoners to be executed. Again, these were all prisoners who posed no immediate threat. They were all in military custody, and mostly had turned themselves in voluntarily. Many had been tried by court-martial and given relatively light sentences. In all, the caravan of death would arbitrarily sentence 75 detainees to death. Moreover, these people were killed in exceptionally cruel ways. Mostly they were tortured to death and their bodies dismembered. In the cases where they were executed by firing squad, the firing squads were given orders to ensure that they died slowly by shooting different potty parts one at a time until the victims expired. 
It's a matter that's up for debate what exactly the roles of the various people involved were. Pinochet tended to point the finger at Arellano, and at his trial tried to implicate the regional commanders for these crimes. They, in turn, insisted that Pinochet himself had ordered these killings, and General Lagos produced a list of names with notes by Pinochet listing who should be killed. In any case, the caravan of death was truly heinous, and while it may matter to the courts who is responsible for what, to me what matters is that the 75 individuals were tortured to death by a group of sadistic killers for no particular crime, and it remains one of the most unambiguously evil acts of the Pinochet regime. The goal of the caravan of death is generally viewed by historians as an attempt to both frighten dissenters in Chile and to cow opposition within the military. One of the most telling scenes, and this is one of those historical episodes that's recounted in just about every book on the military rule in Chile, comes from Talca, where the day of the coup had been particularly peaceful. The caravan arrived in Talca, and General Arellano demanded to see the commander of the regiment, Commander Efrain Hanya Hiron. Commander Hanya recalled that Arellano greeted him standing in the officer's mess hall, holding a glass in one hand and a submachine gun in the other. He didn't salute the commander, as was custom. He demanded to know how many casualties there were in the Talca regiment. Hanya replied, All is quiet in the Talca regiment. Arellano, What do you mean, all is quiet? How many casualties? Hanya. All is quiet. There are no casualties. Ariano. Don't you know that we're at war? Hanya. I don't know what war you're talking about. Hanya went on to explain that there had been reports that farm laborers were threatening to burn the harvest, and he had responded by visiting them unarmed and convincing them to support the new government. He had used a similar tactic at a labor rally, speaking to leaders and convincing them that he should be viewed as the legitimate authority in the region. Hanya said to Ariano that he understood that the new government would need to establish the support of the local groups, and that he had done his best to win their trust and their active support for the junta government. Ariano then produced a copy of a military proclamation that Hanya had issued, asking the city of Talca to put aside their grievances and come together as one behind the military. Ariano was furious, and at the time, Hanya couldn't understand why. He later said in retrospect that he understood that Ariano was furious because in handling the situation peacefully, he had undermined the atmosphere of terror and violence that the junta was cultivating to justify both their brutality and the continuation of their rule. Hanya was replaced by a new commander, and was subsequently arrested and imprisoned. He was charged with not pursuing his military duty on the grounds that he had been slow to search the area, and had allowed the governor to escape, though he later captured, tried, and executed that governor. In an interesting side note, Hanya claimed that the delay in executing the searchers was due to needing his soldiers to patrol in order to keep track of a handful of terrorist attacks, bombings, and arson that had happened after the coup. When he was asked who those terrorists were, he responded that they were right-wing militants associated with Patria y Libertad. So while Hanya was keeping the peace, quieting terrorists, and winning the support of local leaders for the junta government, what was he supposed to be doing? What was he supposed to be searching for? What information should he have been extracting from the populace of Talca? The answer is one of the more Kafkaesque parts of this whole sordid affair. 
Shortly after the coup, the junta issued a document called the White Book on the Change of Government in Chile, in which they detailed, among other things, a sinister Allendeist conspiracy to replace the government with a Soviet-style dictatorship. This plot, called Plan Zeta, or Plan Z is what I'm going to call it here, was what commanders like Hanya were supposed to be tracking down. Prisoners across Chile were tortured into revealing information about Plan Z. So what was this Plan Z? It was a complete fabrication. The junta had asked the help of the CIA and some local historians to help them draft the White Book, and it's widely believed that they concocted Plan Z more or less out of whole cloth. Across Chile, prisoners who had turned themselves in were tortured and often murdered for not revealing the details of a conspiracy that they not only had no part in, but didn't exist at all. The hunt for the details of Plan Z served as a pretext for imposing a state of terror within the Chilean nation and within the armed forces. The plan was supposed to be so widespread and far-reaching that many within the armed forces were accused of participating in it, and those officers who failed to thoroughly prosecute the war on leftist thought in Chile were at risk of getting caught in its web. One Air Force officer described being beaten and interrogated about his alleged involvement in Plan Z. He said, They hit you and pressured you so much that you began to ask yourself if you were involved in the plan or not. And again, uh, just to reiterate, this is an Air Force officer questioning whether or not he was involved in a plot that did not exist. Across Chile, the armed forces saw what was happening to people like Commander Hania and General Cantuarias, and officers strove to demonstrate their unwavering commitment to anti-communism through ever greater displays of violence and brutality. Colonel Benavente, who replaced Commander Hania in Talca, said, The fear that General Ariano provoked in us spread throughout Chile like a torrent. We realized that we had to be much harsher if we wanted to survive. Pinochet also helped to enforce this state of fear in Chile through propaganda in the press. Immediately after the coup, any pro-Allende media outlets were banned. The remaining press was used relentlessly, both to produce an endless deluge of pro-junta propaganda and to spread false stories of shootouts with leftist guerrilla troops and reports of seized caches of weapons. The people of Chile were told every time they turned on the radio or read a newspaper that the threat of the violent leftists was ever-present, and that repression and terror were the only thing keeping them safe from the socialists and their nefarious Plan Z. So Plan Z was an effective boogeyman, and the phantom civil war that raged in the headlines and airwaves, if not in the actual fields of Chile, served to reorient the military as an inward-looking instrument of state terror. The chain of command was reasserted, and Pinochet's power as head of the army grew by leaps and bounds. But leftists and constitutionalists were not the only threats to Pinochet's new authoritarian state. Pinochet also worried about challenges posed by better-respected anti-communist figures within the military. Pinochet was relatively new to his command, and late to the party in planning the coup. There were many generals more respected than Pinochet in the army. Arellano was undoubtedly one. Two others were Oscar Bonilla and Augusto Lutz. After the coup, Lutz and Bonilla began to meet in secret, expressing concerns over the growing power of Pinochet, and began weighing in on matters of state. 
the junta, which now wielded exclusive legislative and executive power, decided to give the four members of the junta nearly unlimited powers within their respective branches of the military. Pinochet wielded this power to purge the ranks of the army of any generals who had anything like his level of support. Within six months after the coup, Pinochet had replaced 15 of 25 generals in the Chilean army, including the four closest to him in seniority. Newly appointed generals were required to sign resignation letters with no date that Pinochet would hold on to throughout their careers. In July, he removed Bonilla from the interior ministry, and he transferred Lutz away to a remote posting, and both would be dead under mysterious circumstances within six months. Both deaths were investigated, and the results of the investigations were never released. Both of these deaths can be considered suspicious, but we don't know enough about them to firmly place those deaths in the hands of Pinochet. One thing that certainly looks bad is that Pinochet was in no way unwilling to order the covert executions of people he considered his political rivals. We'll get into this in more detail next week when I cover Operation Condor and some of Chile's international activities. But several people, including General Carlos Prats and former Interior Minister Orlando Letelier, were killed by the Chilean secret police, the DINA, and have been conclusively tied to Pinochet's orders. Another key general who posed a threat to Pinochet from the right was General Arellano, though his influence and respect was somewhat diminished by the caravan of death. In 1975, Pinochet offered him a foreign ambassadorship, and Arellano resigned in protest, a resignation which Pinochet accepted. Arellano survived the Pinochet years. But let it not be said that Pinochet only ever yielded the stick and never the carrot. Loyal officers, that is, officers loyal to Pinochet, were rewarded. Military budgets were raised by about 30%. Military pay was increased. Under Pinochet, military officers could expect to be paid far more than even very senior civil servants. The military began to be less looked down on by the Chilean society, and applications to military academies soared under Pinochet. Loyal officers of high rank were rewarded with foreign postings, and they were allowed to bring goods purchased overseas into Chile duty-free. Several high-ranking officers were even allowed to profit from several illegal investment schemes alongside Pinochet himself. As long as you towed the party line, and you never contradicted Pinochet in public, you could do quite well for yourself in the Chilean military. In time, Chile had the highest percentage of the population in the military of any Latin American country. Surrounded by fiercely loyal officers and in charge of executive and legislative government, as well as absolute control over the army, Pinochet's personal power was nearly insurmountable, and he began to make moves to marginalize the other members of the junta, the last remaining figures in Chile with any real political power. The plan had been for the four heads of the four branches of the military to govern as equals, and, at least initially, that was how they behaved. I think it's telling that, initially, the junta was required to meet only in rooms that had wide enough doors for all four of them to enter abreast, so no general was first into the room and no general was last into the room. But Pinochet carefully cultivated an air of superiority over the other generals in public. He would always speak last at any event. After General Ley of the Navy was applauded entering an opera house one time, Pinochet declared that the presidential box was off-limits to members of the junta. 
he began to announce appointments that had been decided on jointly while he was alone, giving the impression that he had made the decision unilaterally. Given that he was officially the head of the junta, though all serious matters of state were meant to be decided on by the junta unanimously, Pinochet was indeed in a commanding position. He began making maneuvers to further entrench his position. Pinochet surrounded himself with legal scholars and skilled aides, and began to argue for the need to separate legislative and executive powers. He argued through his team of scholars that Chile needed this separation of powers, and rather than both legislative and executive control being vested in the junta, legislative powers should remain in the hands of the junta and executive power should be devolved to the head of the junta, again, a position which was supposed to rotate among the members. There was some serious opposition to this proposal, especially from General Ley, but in the end, Ley relented in the hopes of preserving junta unity, and in July of 1974, the junta passed a decree law called Decree Law 527, and Pinochet officially became the supreme chief of the nation. This is one of those places where Pinochet just outmaneuvered his opponents. Decree Law 527 split the powers between the junta and the president, but critically, Pinochet kept his seat on the junta. Pinochet was now the sole executive of Chile, and retained his status as one-quarter of the legislative body of the nation. Even more importantly, the junta still had to make decisions unanimously. That meant that, as executive, Pinochet could make executive decrees as he willed, and the junta would not be able to overturn his decisions because, even if all three other generals came together, Pinochet always had what amounted to a veto. Now, it isn't clear, from my reading at least, whether or not the other generals fully understood the extent to which Decree Law 527 would sideline them. Ley's reluctance to support the plan would seem to indicate that they did, or at least that he did, but an aide to Pinochet speaking years later suggested that they were simply out of their depths on legal matters, and that they never fully understood the importance of Pinochet's new double role. By the end of 74, with nearly all political power in his hands, Pinochet began to push for a promotion. Pinochet was, at this point, the supreme chief of the nation, but he was not technically the president, and he began to hound the other members of the junta to support this change of title. At first they disagreed, but Pinochet argued that having a president and not being ruled by the military would make the country more able to approach foreign nations. General Ley was the last member of the junta to agree to sign, and Pinochet became furious. In one confrontation, Pinochet banged his fist down on a glass-topped table so hard that it shattered and he badly cut his hand. Eventually, at the urging of the other two members of the junta, Ley very reluctantly agreed to give Pinochet the title of president. So now Pinochet was, finally, the sole dictator of Chile. Any gentleman's agreement of rotating heads of state was gone forever. Alright, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening to the Dictator's Podcast. If you want to support the show, please spread the word and be sure to tune back in in two weeks when I'll cover Chile's relations with Latin America and the rest of the world.